So I've been doing this little mini pre-sermon series within a sermon series thing, but luckily it's the last week. I said that there were five conversations we should have with God before we give money to a church. Uh, And we're on the fifth one. We've looked at uh, our giving as an act of worship, our giving as an act of obedience, our giving as formation, our giving as participation in the community. And today we're going to look at our giving as an investment in our future. And so here's the question uh, to ask God is, what role do I play in this church's future? Uh, the whole goal of these questions is to make sure that our giving is in alignment with where our heart is and that our giving wouldn't be given out of guilt or out of some sort of, let me just hit some certain quota that I think God wants from me, but rather that our giving would lead us to a wholehearted participation in the church in the way that God intends for us. Uh, the scripture that I want to point out is at the very end of the book of First Chronicles, which tells the story of the kingdom of Israel. And it's the end of David's life. He has a dream to build a, a palace for God. It's going to be this fantastic temple. He's contributing a lot of his own wealth, which of course came uh, from the people themselves. And then he invites the whole people to join with him in this gift. Uh, It's very much a a, a building fundraising campaign. But he says, now who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? And then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. And then if you keep reading the rest of this passage, uh, they give generously. They turn around. They praise God for the generosity of the whole community. David is commissioning his son Solomon to be the one to build this temple. And so all the people are looking forward to this hopeful future where the temple will be the center of who they are as a people. Uh, Not just that, but the center where nations from around will come and will worship and will get to know God through this space. And so you see this act of generosity and the hope of what the future might hold for them within the community. Uh, So the same way, if you're going to be giving to a church, also make sure you're asking God the question, What role do I play in this church's future? And then how can I participate in that and allow my giving to be in line with what my role will be in the future of the church? Uh, If you weren't here when we started this whole mini-series, it came out of presenting uh, our financial report from last year in 2022 and then kind of where we see ourselves going in 2023. We shared with you all that the trustees uh, saw a rather significant deficit And so I said, all right, well, let's uh, invite you to have conversations around what it means to give to the church, uh, but then also to be praying to allow God to shape us. Uh, I also mentioned uh, we're very aware that this is our plan and that plan is not a good plan. We need to adjust some things. And so at the end of this month, uh, March 27th, we're going to have a joint meeting with trustees, elders, staff, all together to start formulating what that plan for going forward will look like at the church. Uh, So I just invite you to be praying for that, be praying for unity for all of us as leaders, um, and also clarity for what this vision of the future might be. What role do we play within the community? Uh, As we know that, that will certainly help us know how we should do church or where we should do church, uh, what this will look like going forward. Uh, Also, If you've got any suggestions or questions, let us know, me, Kim, trustee and elder, uh, whoever, let us know before this date. Uh, We certainly want to be able to have a conversation with all of you 
uh, and not just go into some sort of dark room and then come out and tell you guys, hey, here's, here's what we're doing with all your money and where you're going. Um, we'd love for that to be a conversation that we all have. Uh, so be praying for us. And then on April 2nd, that's the next Sunday after that meeting, you can expect to hear an update. All right, well, here's what we talked about. Here's kind of what we're thinking. Um, and perhaps here's the path forward. Um, there's no... Uh, deadline or something. I can't tell you, hey, we're going to have the whole thing scripted out, but we'll give you an update on April 2nd and just let you know, here's kind of where we're headed. So that's the end of that sermon, mini sermon series. Now let's get to the real one that we're, we're in. We're, we're looking at John chapter 13 and 14 and spending some time here before Easter in the Last Supper where we want to hear uh, the questions that the disciples are asking to Jesus as they try to struggle with this new reality of Jesus going away from them. Um, how many of you have ever really supported someone who you end up finding out later was lying to you? You know, where you're championing them and you're, you're, you've got their back and it turns out they actually weren't who they said they were. They weren't representing who they were. Um, you probably have personal examples, but I remember as a nation, we were all rooting for Lance Armstrong. You know, as he beat cancer and he was coming back, he won seven straight Tour de France titles. But then some rumors started that he was taking performance-enhancing drugs, and he denied them, and, and we stood up for him, you know, and then it turns out, ah, oh, okay, actually he did, and then he admitted them, and then his titles were stripped, and you kind of feel this disappointment, like this hero wasn't who they said they were. Or I remember in college, I went to school in Cleveland, and a local author wrote his very first novel. It was a, a personal memoir about kind of the trials that he had experienced. It's called uh, A Million Little Pieces, and then a few years later, uh, some researchers or investigative journalists uh, uncovered that the majority of it was all made up. Uh, it should not be a memoir. It was fiction. It caused such a big uh, fur because uh, Oprah had sponsored it as a memoir. It was on the New York Times bestsellers. It got so bad that the publisher actually offered refunds for anyone who claimed that they had bought it thinking it was a memoir uh, because it was actually a work of fiction. Uh, these things... Uh, hit us harder when they're closer to home, when they're more personal relationships with us, uh, or we can translate it over into the church world. Uh, it can be really damaging to our faith uh, when it's someone who is professing to be a Christian or as a pastor or as an author or a musician or someone who really shaped and formed your faith that then no longer chooses to follow or, or decides, you know what, that's not important to me anymore. It can really rock who we are. Uh, there was a, a Christian musician that uh, was really formative in my life. I really liked how he thought about Jesus, how he talked about Jesus. He was very uh, scholarly, wrote a book, I got it. Uh, and then a few years ago, he releases this long one-hour video on YouTube uh, where he shares how he no longer believes any of that is true. You know, and I felt, no, there's no way that, that you could have walked away from the faith. Like, you, you shaped how I believe who Jesus is. Like, how could you no longer believe him? You know, and I don't know about you, but in these stories, I'm fascinated and I'm caught, I'm curious, and also I'm deeply saddened, you know, to try to understand, well, how did this process work or how did this person live a lie for so long? You know, like where, where was the disconnect where they're saying one thing, you know, or they're doubling down and swearing that this, this is who I am and yet they know that there's areas of their life that don't line up. Like how does that work? And then how can they feel okay yeah, mentoring or, or shepherding people uh, only to destroy us. Uh, we're going to look at the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, one of the disciples. It plays a prominent role in that Last Supper scene. And the question that we're going to be 
sitting on today is a question of uh, John, the author himself, uh, who asked Jesus, uh, Lord, who is it? Uh, when he says, one of you will betray me. So let's jump in and as we explore this process, it can help us understand, well, what are we supposed to do with our feelings uh, when someone betrays us or when a Christian leader falls or, uh, you know, when our faith is rocked because people aren't who they say they are, you know, or when you have hypocrisy revealed in someone. Uh, where do we go from there? How do we protect our faith? Uh, we're in John chapter 13. Uh, we're going to be reading uh, just 13 verses from 18 down to 30. I'll read them all together, uh, and then we'll focus in on that question. So this is Jesus. Uh, he says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen. Uh, just real quick, last week, if you weren't here, he's just washed their feet. And then the last thing he says is, now you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And then he says in 18, I'm not referring to all of you with that blessing. He says, I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Who sent me. And after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So there's quite a bit of a, a scene here where we learn of this interaction where Jesus reveals that he knows one of them would betray him. And so then the question that we're looking at is the Lord, who is it? Uh, which to me is a very natural question. If I was in that same scenario, I'd, I'd probably say, say the same, same thing, you know, to Jesus. But setting the scene, they're, they're, they're at a dinner together. It's not like a banquet that we might have. Uh, they're likely sitting on cushions. It talks about them reclining and leaning on each other. Um, we, we don't have uh, very many details, but from other sources uh, in the Roman Empire at that time, uh, it'd be common to have like a U-shaped table where the servants would come in or whoever's serving the dinner could kind of come inside the U-shape and then the guests would be around the outside. Uh, but they'd be kind of leaning on a, a cushion or a pillow of some sort while they're eating. You know, and so here at the table, Jesus makes this announcement. You know, he's troubled. He says, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. You know, and you can just imagine the disciples like, what? Do you, what? Like, what do you mean? Like, here we, we're having dinner with you, right? And so then there's Peter who's already shown himself. He's not afraid to speak up. You know, like if he's thinking something, he'll say it. He's like, I, I imagine Peter's not sitting next to Jesus, right? And John is, right? It says he's re reclined next to him. So he's like, yo, John, John, hey, John, 
ask him who it is. You know, like, like I can just imagine, like Peter's got this burden to know. And then it says that John, you know, is reclining next to him, leans back against Jesus. So, I'm, you know, if they're all reclined, I'm, my guess is John's right there. So all he's got to do is kind of like, hey, Jesus, who is it? You know, and, and my guess is that it's whispered. It's discreet conversation between John and Jesus. Why? Because when Judas walks out, all the disciples are like, oh, he's probably going buying something for the festival, you know, giving money. They have no clue that there was this interchange between Jesus and John. But Jesus answers John's question and says, well, it's, it's who I dip my bread, uh, well, give my dip bread to. You know, and then he gives it to Judas, who I, must have been close, right? I mean, maybe on the other side. But the disciples don't see what's happening. The, the question itself by John, to me, feels normal, right? Like if, if you heard in a dream, right, one of us here in Beyond Church will fall, right? We'll, we'll choose to deny Jesus and leave the faith entirely. I would be like, okay, who? You know, like, well, and also like, well, is it me, right? Like, like there, there's, there's two separate kind of questions in my mind. One that, that would probably be there is I doubt it, right? Like, like, there's no, like, like the, you can't mean what you mean, right? Like in John's mind, in the disciples' mind, they're looking at each other like, there's, how, do, how do you mean betray you? None of them could have understood that one of them would hand Jesus over to his executioners to be killed the next day. You know, like, like none of their minds probably went that far. And I think we probably feel the same way about church leaders where there's a certain uh, maybe naivety in how fallen human uh, nature is, where if we have a favorite Christian author, a favorite Christian speaker, a favorite Christian mentor, you know, a pastor or whoever it is that we, we're like, oh, I just want to be like them. They're so great. And, and we tend, I don't know if it's human nature, just to follow people, almost choosing not to believe that they're human, right? Like, like we want to have someone lead us and disciple us and show us where the pathway is. Uh, the other thing that I think uh, is there in John, and it definitely says his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant, is that feeling of, you know, is it me? Because Jesus, Jesus didn't reveal, hey, it's, it's Judas the Iscariot. He said, no, it's uh, one of you 12, right? And so you look around, you're like, well, one in 12 chance, it's me. And so you want, like self-justification, right? Like John's probably running through his mind, like, well, I've made some dumb decisions in the past. You know, like, I, I mean, I, I think I'm here. I think I'm committed, you know, but maybe, maybe not quite as much. You know, and, and Jesus already had this, this funny exchange with Peter where he's kind of like, Peter, you don't need all the washing, but unless you do this, you have no part of me. It's like, well, maybe I'll do something wrong. And then Jesus will say, you know, you're, cut me off. You know, and I think I feel a little bit of that. Like how many of us carry throughout our day, like Jesus is watching us and I know I'm going to disappoint him. You know, there's all these little tests that I have and I know I'm going to disappoint him left or right. I just want that assurance from God. Like, no, it's not you. You know, and I don't know what, what John is going to do with the information. He doesn't do anything with it, right? I mean, he's like, Judas, hey, wait, don't go, <laughs> you know? Like, there, there's none of this where it's meant to be beneficial. Uh, he's curious. He wants to know. And I wonder if he breathes a sigh of relief. Oh, thank goodness. You know, like, it's, <laughs> Jesus says, it's, it's the person that I dip this bread into and then I give it, you know? And then a little while later, Jesus is eating and all of a sudden he dips the bread and John's like, <gasps> You know, and I, I don't know, like, is Jesus like, you know, like duck, duck, goose, you know, like duck, 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 you know, like in John's mind where he's like, well, where's it going to stop? And then, you know, when it goes to Judas, it's like, 
You know, like you feel that like, thank goodness it's not me. And then, I mean, can we relate to the fact when someone shares something, like I've stumbled in my life, right? Or you're in community group and someone says, well, I'm really struggling with this. And you go, oh, thank God that's not me. You know, and, and we kind of almost feel smug, right? That, that we're more righteous than other people, you know, or that like at least I'm not like that. You know, like my sins are whew, a little bit more put together. I don't have to sit here and confess with other people. And I'd say that's a problem. I don't know if that's going on in John's head, but these are all feelings that we feel. Or you see some religious leader, a pastor falling, say, ah, I knew it was coming. You know, he had so much pride and, and you start feeling a little better about yourself that, well, at least that's not me. I would never do that. What do we do with all these feelings inside of us? You know, feeling like, uh, I wonder if it's me, feeling like God might be looking at us, you know, feeling like maybe we're holding on to people too strong or the smugness we feel when others are falling, but we're at least not exposed yet. <laughs> Looking at this passage can help give us a few pathways forward. Um, first, how Jesus frames this entire conversation says something about him. Uh, he starts off by saying, uh, this is uh, something that I've known about right? Like th this wasn't a surprise to me. It's not going to be a surprise to me. You know, God didn't show up to me in a dream. Like God, my father didn't say, uh, oh, by the way, the, the way you're going to die is through betrayal. No, he's known about this from the beginning. John says this earlier in his ministry in John chapter six, if there are some of you who do not believe, this is a words of Jesus was speaking and says, for Jesus had known from the beginning, which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Jesus always knew that Judas was the one who would betray him. And yet Jesus picked his 12 disciples. He included Judas, right? Judas was in charge of the money, it says. He gave him responsibility, entrusted him with significant ministry, knowing that Judas was going to betray him. Like, this is not uh, puzzling to Jesus. This is not a surprise to Jesus. He is willingly entrusting his ministry to a person that he knows will fail him and he knows is broken and knows will ultimately leave him and cause pain. And then here's how he frames it with his disciples. In verses 18 and 19, he says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Well, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Jesus is saying uh, that God's faithfulness is the steady thing. You know, like, I, like this has been foretold in scripture so you can trust God, don't worry. You know, the, even the fact that he says, so when it happens, you'll believe that I am who I am means he's at least concerned that their faith will get rocked. You know, that, that someone would be like, whoa, Jesus, did you... There's no way you saw this coming. Why did you, why did you include Judas? Or, or if you knew on that night, why didn't you kick him out? Like, why did, you, why did you entrust him with ministry? Like, Jesus, I don't trust your judgment. There's no way that you could know the entire world. Like, you, there's no way you're God if this happened. If one of your closest friends betrays you to death, no, you're not God. And so Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's something that's happening way bigger than what we're doing right here. And, and God is the one who's in control of this entire event. And the message that I want us to take that I think he wanted his disciples to know and learn is that humans will fail you, God never will. So the, the fact that 
yes, Judas will betray Jesus. Judas will betray Jesus. And that's not affecting Jesus' faith. He's still able to continue. He shows that this was all part of God's plan from the beginning anyway. So we should not place our faith too strongly in people. And for his disciples, he, he's, yes, this person who's really close, this person who does give money to the poor, who, who is a key part of ministry, that's not where your faith is. Don't let their failure reflect back on God's character and, and show failure for him. He is the one who's in control. So I want us to apply to our lives. What does this look like? Uh, I mean, for one, uh, we tend as a Christian culture to elevate Christian leaders, authors, pastors, uh, Christian TV shows, Christian content bloggers, podcasters, even Christian mentors. Uh, we like following them. We seem to insist on placing humans as the face of our churches. And if we insist on doing that, we will consistently uh, be disappointed and consistently meet failure. Uh, we just have to accept that that's going to be uh, how things go because humans fail, but God never does. We just have to make sure that we don't miss seeing God behind the humanity, you know? And so when the human falls or, or even when the human is preaching so well or just living such a great life of, of who God is and reflecting his character, make sure you're not missing the God who's working through them in that hear his message, see his goodness through them, and just know that they're the human that God is choosing to use. Uh, you know, I, I don't watch a lot of Christian media. Uh, I think I'm concerned that when I talk about it, uh, or in my head when I think about it, I'll start thinking that the, the movie or the TV show is the actual truth about who God is, as opposed to uh, God's character or what the Bible says about him. Uh, but I did have the opportunity to watch the Jesus Revolution, uh, the, the, the new film, yeah, that, that's out. And I want to thank Nikki. She, she made it possible for our family, so thank you. Um, it, was, it was a really good movie. It's about this uh, Jesus movement in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, so I don't want to reveal my age, but I wasn't around then. So I don't have, <laughs> I know some of you guys thought I might be. Um, no, I don't have any firsthand memories, right? So when I watch this movie, I'm not reliving the past. I'm more learning about something uh, that I've maybe only read about and have very limited knowledge in. And so after the movie, I wanted to go research uh, the people that were portrayed within the movie and try to get, you know, more of the story, the background of how this happened. Uh, one of the main characters in the movie and in the Jesus movement itself was a man called, Lon called named <laughs> Lonnie Frisbee. Um, and I had just heard the name. I didn't know any of the story. Uh, what an intriguing story. I saw uh, there's a blog post about Lonnie Frisbee by Greg Laurie, who's another one of the people in the movie. I don't know. You can, you can find out if you want. But Lonnie Frisbee uh, was a hippie. He had he'd gone to San Francisco to live the hippie lifestyle and has this dramatic encounter with God uh, where he sees a vision of Lonnie baptizing hundreds of people in the ocean. And so from that point, his life changes. He becomes this passionate evangelist and this movement is born. And all sorts of youth, uh, particularly hippie youth, are coming and they're getting baptized by the droves inside the ocean. Uh, and then that's, then the story kind of in the movie kind of follows uh, more Greg Laurie's story after that. Um, but you look at the rest of Lonnie's life and it's very interesting. There's uh, splits with churches where they can't quite work together with them. Um, yeah, he's absolutely dynamic and charismatic, but man, some of the hippie ways kind of stayed with him his whole entire life. 
Uh, today is actually the anniversary, 30th anniversary of his death. You know, and at his death, uh, the pastor they worked with portrayed in the movie, Chuck Smith, uh, shared that Lonnie, uh, he actually got criticism, but he compared Lonnie's life to that of Samson, someone who God works powerful miracles through, but is also deeply flawed as a human. And we could easily point out different elements of Lonnie's life and say, well, this wasn't a mature Christian. You know, I mean, look at this. He struggled in these areas. Like, clearly, clearly he wasn't a true follower. You know, like, we, we, you shouldn't listen to what he says because he didn't have the discipleship or what, he could have been so much more if he only would have humbled himself, if he would have allowed himself to be discipled by other pastors, by other men. You know, what, what a tragic life of, of mispotential. You know, it's like we could easily say that and, and people probably have. But, but look, have we not missed the point? Like, God used him powerfully. What do you mean, like, like mispotential? Or like, this guy didn't have God? Like, look at the fruit of his life. But guess what? Human, humans do fail you. So if you're following Lonnie Frisbee, you're going to be disappointed. But if you're following the God who empowered Lonnie Frisbee, hey, now you've got a rock that you can stand on. It, it's too easy for us to look at different leaders um, or if we want to make it more personal, look at each other. Uh, we're definitely going to fail each other. Uh, we're definitely going to prove our humanity with each other. But that's almost to be expected. Not to be accepted, but to be expected. What we're supposed to do is respond with the grace and the love that God has and that Jesus demonstrated even to Judas, knowing that this person was going to betray him. And yet he still loves him. It's a great picture of another disciple, Peter. Uh, we'll read this next week uh, where Jesus says that you will deny me. And then we won't read this because it's the chapters afterwards. Peter does deny Jesus. You know, it's this massive like, oh no, is Peter going to go the route of Judas and completely walk away and betray him? No. Peter holds on to Jesus and Jesus forgives him, restores him, and commissions him to take care of the church that he's going to leave behind when he ascends. Uh, may we have the same graciousness, the same love, the same generosity, the same forgiveness for one another, for Christian leaders. And may we make sure that we see the God behind the people when he's speaking. Because God chooses broken tools. He doesn't just use broken tools. He, cho he chooses broken tools, which also means there's hope for us. And then that's the second application for ourselves. You know, as opposed to walking around feeling like, oh no, I might disappoint God. You know, I'm not like, uh, I, I need to make sure that I live my life right. Otherwise, God will be frustrated, angry, or disciplined, or punish me. Um, no, we will fail. God will never fail. We, we have to accept the fact that, yes, uh, we will disappoint God. We are not going to follow the right steps 100% of the time. And that doesn't mean that we just say, oh, well, all right, well, glad God knows that, and off we go. No, we we want to struggle to hold on to him. You know, I don't, I don't preach a lot about Satan because I don't want to put him into the story where he isn't in the story, but there he is. It says, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. The Bible teaches that Satan's there to trip us up and pull us away from Jesus. That Jesus wants to share life with us, and yet there's this adversary that's tripping us up, pulling us back, that we're supposed to resist. James says it like this, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. 
there's a struggle. It's, it's one thing to know that we're going to disappoint God. It's another to just allow ourselves to wander further and further away. Resist the devil. Choose to remain in God. This means that we will be humble. We will acknowledge, I am imperfect. My representation of Jesus is imperfect, which means we will allow to be corrected. We will be open to correction from our community groups when they say, Brad, you know, maybe you could do this a little bit differently. That's not quite like Jesus. We would have to say, ah, you know what, you're right. And that would lead to confession. I am not following Jesus correctly in this area of my life. That will lead to repentance. I choose to turn away from the devil and hold on to God and to be restored. It's the way of forgiveness and allowing God to restore us and build us back into the person that we're supposed to be. It will change how we view our failures and how we interact with each other, where we can gently restore each other knowing that I do need to be restored. No, I'm not perfect. And if we can figure this out. Ooh, we're almost close to the end. Humans will fail you and God never will. Uh, This will enable us to care more gently for each other, to be more forgiving, uh, to not have our faith rocked when our favorite Christian pastor falls or when the book that we're reading that's forming our life wasn't even followed by its author. We'll be able to hold on to the rock. We'll be able to see God behind the person that we're elevating. And then we'll have hope for ourselves because God chooses broken people. That means, hey, he's choosing us. We don't, oh man, I forgot to make this point. We're gonna make it right at the very end. Maybe this is how God wanted me to conclude. (laughs) We, We tend to believe that God won't use me unless I can prove myself, right? Unless I can live my life just perfectly right. Like all those little things in our life, I've gotta get this exactly right and then God will use me and maybe for something big. Look, Remember Lonnie Frisbee, watch the Jesus Revolution, look at anyone. God chooses the broken people who aren't there yet, who who might still struggle with brokenness, who might ultimately walk away like Judas. He chooses to use broken people. So that means all of us, there's no such, well, let me just prove to him that I'm worthy enough and then he might use me. Uh, If we're available and ready, he will use us in spite of our inaccurate reflection of who he is. So perhaps that's where we'll land. Allow God to use you even within your brokenness, uh, knowing that God wants to restore you. Hold on to him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, it's sobering to to hear Judas's story. Uh, It's sobering to look at our world. It's sobering to look into our past and people that have disappointed us, let us down. People who profess to be Christians and then don't act in a way that emulates your character and who you are. Lord, we recognize our humanity and our need for you. I thank you for using us and not abandoning us or not giving us some sort of test in order to use us. Um, But Lord, come, help us, fix us, restore us. Uh, May you make us whole. May you work in ways and may we see you um, and not the humanity and the people around us, Lord. Speak to us. We want you and we want to hold on to humans less. In your name we pray, amen. All right, I'll give still a little bit of time. Maybe we'll take five minutes uh, for just some of these questions. Uh, One is just a story. How has your faith been affected by a fallen church leader? Uh, Especially if there's someone that really was significant and then they walked away. Uh, What did that do for your faith? 
Uh, Two, how should we respond to doubts about faith within our church and then within our community at large? So when someone says, I don't know if Jesus is real, what does that look like for us to, to have that next step? What do we respond with? And then lastly, what practices can help your faith remain rooted in God and not in humans? This is looking for practical things. What can we do, either as a church or as individuals, to make sure we're holding on to God and not humans? Uh, Take about five minutes, and then I'll come back up, and I'll dismiss you.